Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 262 of the Tick Boot Camp podcast. The title of today's interview is Courageous Insider, an interview with Gabriella Wajaganawardena. My name is Jenny Batacchio. And I'm Matt Sabatello. So, Jenny, today our listeners are in for a real treat. Gabriella went through a very long diagnostic journey and did a lot of creative things throughout the way that helped her a little bit, but never got to the root cause. And Jenny, what really bothered me the most is that somebody who was in the medical community, a nurse, was failed by her own community. And as somebody like yourself, Jenny, who comes from the medical community, what are your thoughts on this? You know, I should probably be surprised, but unfortunately I'm not. I think it's common and I I too encountered some of the same situations, but Gabrielle is able to provide us with some very helpful insights on how to navigate the healthcare system, being this courageous insider that she is, and having to step outside of the conventional medical system to actually find true healing from migraines, MCAS, SIBO, Lyme disease eventually, and stumble upon the treatment that would ultimately be the turning point, which was SOT for her. And Jenny, what I really loved most about this interview is the fact that Gabriella combined Western with Eastern medicine and then brought in something cutting edge like SOT therapy. Without further ado, Gabriella with Jaganawardena, take it away. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Tick Boot Camp. And I am Jenny Batacchio, and I'm co hosting today with Matt Sabatello. And we are here with Gabriella Wajaganawardena. We're so happy to have you. I read a little bit of your story on your link tree, and I, I see that the sheet that you filled out for Tick Boot Camp. And it's very interesting. You have been through a lot over the course of years, but particularly in this past like one to two years, you've really, you've really gone through a lot. Can you give us a little bit of your background, where you're from, what you did previously, and kind of where you're living now? Yeah, um, I grew up in Central California in a small town. It had about 2000 people, farm labor community. And um, yeah, I, I lived there. I think it was pretty uneventful. There weren't, you know, big things related to my health that happened growing up. Um, and then I went to nursing school. I became a nurse and worked there for a year and then moved to San Francisco. And San Francisco is where I got Lyme disease. And I continued to work at the bedside as a nurse in the neonatal intensive care for five years of that journey, of my Lyme journey before I was diagnosed. And A year ago, we moved to uh, Maryland, and I live here now and and am in remission. And yeah, I mean, it's kind of, there's kind of a lot packed into those chapters in between, but that's kind of the rough overview. And you had you always wanted to be a nurse? No, I think, you know, I wanted to be a journalist growing up and there were things that happened um, early on in my life when I was in high school that propelled me toward a healing profession. And it's something that I fell in love with and felt so empowered knowing, knowing what you learn as a nurse, you know, how, how the body works, how pathogens work. And it just felt so empowering and it was just so exciting to me and I I still love it to this day. And you had said that you were 
working in the neonatal intensive care unit while struggling with symptoms of Lyme. Can you share yeah. what a few of those symptoms were and what working in such a high intensity environment was like? I, I, I have, I was an occupational therapist um, before I actually segued into journalism and um, I did like just a brief little rotation in a neonatal intensive care unit. And that is a stress unlike any other setting in a hospital I could imagine. So I would, you know, just like, how did you deal with that and symptoms at the same time? Because it is fast paced, so intense. Yeah. You know, that's, that's the hard thing with Lyme disease, right? That it, 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 you see it play out differently in everyone's body. And I think that my symptoms came in kind of like in spurts and they just kind of trickled in. And so I, the first one was migraines and they started to worsen. And I couldn't understand why, because I wasn't doing anything differently. And, you know, the next one was interstitial cystitis and that was mistaken for UTIs. And so I would attack each one, right? And then I would think, okay, I'm going to be able to get back to my baseline, to that healthy place. And, you know, coffee works wonders and kept me alert um, at the bedside. And I was able to kind of tackle those things. I think I was lucky in the sense that I ate a healthy diet. I worked out. I was really trying to live my healthiest life. And so Lyme had a hard time in and tackling me completely just because I think my gut was initially in a good place. And so it, it kind of, so I, it looked like I was tackling one thing at a time and just trying to get back to baseline. And that's kind of how I survived it. And I also switched from night shift to day shift, which helped. Um, and so instead of working six, 12 hour shifts in a week, I now worked three, 12 hour shifts in a week and they were day shift. So little things like that helped that I kind of tweaked along the way and made it manageable. Not that those things didn't keep popping up, but I did have months where I was relatively okay. And so I kind of just kind of got by that way. And when did you first start noticing symptoms? Like when did they pop up? Yeah, I started noticing symptoms in 2013 and at the beginning of 2013. And a lot of those symptoms were around migraines, but I had always had migraines um, growing up since I started my period, just during the week of my period, right? And so now they were kind of not just limited to that week. And so that, that was the first symptom, but it wasn't like it was this new symptom that I had never had, right? And so it didn't raise this huge red flag for me I just thought, I, I don't know why this progression is happening, but I need to figure out why. But I never in a million years would have thought it was Lyme. And then with interstitial cystitis, it's often misdiagnosed for UTIs, right? And so I was treated for UTIs and those were the first two big symptoms. And they, those are the ones that persisted for a couple of years without snowballing into a bunch of other things and some, and some joint pain. Um, but, um, I had had some previous injuries, so we just thought that maybe it was related to that. And had you had a recollection of a, of a tick bite or anything that was pointing to Lyme at that point? 
No, none. And so that was 2013. And so did those symptoms last uh, and then go away and then other ones pop up? Or were you just kind of having one symptom slowly stack upon another? Yeah, I think it was looking back, I can see that it was a slow progression. I think that one of the things that helped with migraines and one of the things that is often recommended for patients is to get Botox injections to the scalp for migraine pain. And so every three months I would get like 15, 16 injections to my scalp and my neck to try to decrease the intensity of those migraines. And so it's not that that resolved, it's that that helped mask the symptoms along with migraine medications that I took. So it's not like we got to the root cause, but it wasn't this huge symptom that was impairing me in, in, in a way that, you know, I couldn't function in day-to-day life. And at what point for you, did you feel like this is escalating to a point where I have to look to see what else might be going on? Well, that's the thing, you You know, I think that when you believe deeply in science and you're in the healthcare profession, you trust it to figure out what is wrong with you, what's happening with you. And I walked into a hospital, you know, three days out of the week after I went to day shift stacked with like every specialty that could have helped me tease this apart, but that wasn't happening. But my faith was like deep in science. And I had no doubt in my mind that Western medicine, conventional medicine would help heal me and get me back to that baseline. And so I didn't branch out and look at, you know, what people like to call alternative medicine until well after that. So it was years of me searching out the best, you know, specialists that I could in San Francisco to help me. And I would be rigorous about like looking through their background, their certifications, like their patient reviews, um, everything I could do to try to to get to the root of what was causing those things. But I, I wasn't looking at other things. Like I had tunnel vision about like, look, this is like, this is my profession. I've, I have faith in it. I have seen it save lives, you know, at the bedside. You know, I've been a nurse for almost two decades. So, you know, hundreds of times. And I, I had complete faith in it. And I just like went deep into that seeing specialist so, after specialist. Were, was it primarily the migraines and interstitial cystitis that was driving the, um, you know, like the urge to keep going to specialists or were there other symptoms that, were, that you were beginning to experience as well? Yeah, there were other symptoms rolling in. Like I had what looked like rosacea. I had some gut issues starting. I had allergies, what, what looked like they were allergies. Um, and so, but they didn't all come at once. And it wasn't, like I said, this overwhelming, like you're done, you can't function day to day. It just kind of trickled in and I would address them um, with medication and, and different, different things like that. And I would have some improvement. And so it kind of just fueled that faith and like, you know, I'm going to get to the bottom of this. So 
what kind of tipped it over the edge for you where you were like, okay, I have, you know, I'm a nurse, I have faith in science, but there's more. Is there a thing that you were like, I've got to step outside of the box here? Yeah. You know, I was seeing one of the best gastroenterologists in San Francisco and I, they couldn't figure out why I was having these allergic reactions, you know, with migraines and flushing and rashes to different foods. And she wasn't the first gastroenterologist I had seen. And so when I got to her, I just thought she has to have the answer, right? She's one of the best. She's going to have the answers. And her answer just kind of left me dumbfounded because she said, you know, you should keep a diary of the foods that you can't eat and avoid them. And we should do a endoscopy to rule out celiac disease and H. pylori. And if those are negative, then what's the solution I asked? And she said, oh, just avoid the foods that, that bother you, that give you migraines. And so when I had the endoscopy, it was negative for celiac and negative for H. pylori. That was still her response to just keep a food diary and avoid the foods that triggered those re- reactions. And I just thought, yeah, that's less foods by the week, you know, that, that I'm having reactions to more and more foods. How is this a viable option? And how so, there's something going on, you know, by this point, it wasn't just migraines. It wasn't just interstitial cystitis. Right. And so I just thought there, there has to be a different answer. And at that time, I also, um, was experiencing a hypertonic pelvic floor. And so my muscles, um, were very, very tight. And my, when I was sharing this with my pelvic floor physical therapist and, and no one knew by the way, what was causing this, uh, one of the reasons was mentioned by a urologist was that, you know, nurses are known to hold their bladder because they're at the bedside and they're, they're doing stuff and they can't just leave. And so, he said, you know, it's probably because you're, you're not, you're doing that. And so your pelvic floor is really, really tight. And you've been doing it for a long time at this point at the bedside. And, you know, teachers have these same issues. And so th- this is, this is likely why you have this issue. But the pelvic floor physical therapist that I saw said, you know, I think you should see, I think you should do an elimination diet. But in order to do that, I think you need to see this naturopath. I think she might have some answers for you. She's seen some of our complicated patients. And I think that you should see her. And, you know, to be really honest, at that point, I just kind of bristled at the thought. I was just like, whoa, whoa, wait, hold on a second. I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm seeing the best specialists there are. And like, do I want to go down this path? And then I thought, why wouldn't you? They haven't had the answer. Like, give it a chance. Try to be open-minded and see what happens. And that's when my my path to healing started. Okay. It's interesting because uh, you use the word complicated that the the physical therapist had said that, uh, you know, I want to refer you to someone who uh, handles, you know, complicated cases. I haven't met a Lyme patient and or an interstitial cystitis patient for that matter, who isn't complicated. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> like everybody's everybody's complicated. We're we all we all have yeah. like a long list of symptoms, and um, we're all complicated. So 
I don't know. I always find it kind of interesting whenever that is is used to describe patients. I'd like to see a non-complicated patient <laughs> at some point. <laughs> what does that look yeah. like? Yeah. Just a run-of-the-mill stub toe. I don't know. I, I think in her in her book, you know, she saw a lot of postpartum patients. And so, you know, it was whatever was going on in the pelvic floor was as a result of carrying a child and labor. And so um, once that passed, they were able to relax the muscles and then the patient stopped needing physical therapy. And so I think that was like a more standard kind of patient that she was used to dealing with. But um, yeah, I totally hear what you're saying. Everyone has a complicated story by the time they they get to a certain point with their health and conventional medicine, I think. Yeah. Uh, I also went through the interstitial cystitis uh, experience. Um, it lasted many years. So I, I fully understand what that's like. Um, so you had migraines, interstitial cystitis, some uh, body pain, um, a hyper uh, tonic pelvic floor muscles, what sounds like pretty severe food allergies or food reactions. I don't know if yeah. you were officially labeled as allergic at that time, but it sounds like you had some pretty significant food uh, reactions. And at that point you were, you were open to, yeah, there's gotta be more going on here. Yeah, definitely. I, you know, I was desperate. And by this point I had had a child and I just wanted to be able to get back to that healthy place and just be able to focus on being a mom, not like, you know, every waking minute was filled with finding the next specialist, like who's going to give me my answers? What other medication can I try? Like, you know, who can I see to try to unravel this? And, and I was tired of it. No, definitely. And by that point, were you noticing that as the symptoms began to increase as the number of symptoms really that began to increase were you noticing it was affecting work and home life yeah definitely and I think that you know when you're at the bedside those symptoms are so disruptive but it doesn't exonerate you from having to play your role and 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 do your job and that was really stressful. So I caught myself, you know, I was having brain fog. I was having anxiety creep up. Um, just so many, so many symptoms were coming into play and I couldn't explain them. But so I just was like triple checking medications, you know, three or four times I would check the same medication. I would like comb through the chart. I would like try to do, I was definitely doing more than I had to do before in order to keep up my standard of care. And I kind of didn't, I didn't see a cho another, another choice, another solution. I thought, I thought, you know, I'm doing everything in my power outside of work to try to handle this. And then when I show up to work, I have to do my job and do it well and not make mistakes. There's no room for error in the NICU. I mean, you know, medications are like 0.1 milliliters, 0.2 milliliters and patients you know, are often under a pound. And so I just, I just triple quadruple checked everything. And at the same time as I was also the union rep for our unit. And so there was also the, 
that stress, but I couldn't step down from that role because I believe deeply in giving the best patient care. And if you're short staffed and ratios aren't being followed, you can't do that. And so I couldn't give up either one, right? They kind of just go together. Mm -hmm. And so I just kind of tried to power through and drank a lot of coffee. Which I didn't help my interstitial cystitis, yeah. but, <laughs> but, but that's what I did, yeah. I can imagine that was uh, incredibly stressful, though, and very difficult, very challenging. Yeah. Were you noticing that there were things that you just could no longer do, that you just had to stop doing? You, you couldn't, obviously change work obligations and home obligations, but were there, were there activities that you just were like, I have to take them off the list for right now? Yeah, I definitely started to do that with my social life. Uh, I just didn't have a lot to give in that department. And so I really just kind of took a step back and minimized a lot of those interactions because I just didn't have the bandwidth. Uh, literally every waking moment outside of work was me showing up as a mom, as a wife, and also um, looking for the next doctor that could give me answers, that could get me back to a healthy place. And I think I read somewhere that you were, that you described yourself as a foodie. Is that, so that obviously with, I'm, I'm guessing with food reactions, plus interstitial cystitis, plus other symptoms that were causing you to feel unwell, that that was something you really weren't able to participate in much. Is that kind of accurate? Yeah, you know, that that is accurate. Although, because I am a, a committed foodie, I found ways around it only because nice. when I went to the naturopath um, that I started seeing, she identified gut issues that I had. And you know, there, there's no doubt in my mind that it's Lyme disease that suppressed my immune system that allowed these things that might have been brewing to fully take off, like SIBO um, and Candida. And so when I addressed those, it bought me some time as far as my gut, right? Because I was able to reintroduce a lot of foods back, right? And I wasn't getting these deep, deep migraines with foods in the same way. And so because I treated SIBO, I treated candida, I went gluten and dairy free. And so my, my foodiness just kind of changed to now be gluten and dairy free, but I kept at it. Um, I, didn't, I, I didn't have to retire from that just yet. Nice. <laughs> uh, Matt, I think we can kick it over to you. And we, we, we veered into your lane just a little bit by okay. kind of talking about diagnosis, but... So Jenny, one of the things that I think our listeners know when we do these special guest co-hosts is we love to have this, this part be a discussion with all of us. So feel free to chime in, but I have so many questions and I was, I was politely waiting, but you can tell I'm, I'm eager about this because Gabrielle, one of the things that I find so interesting, and I think we don't talk about enough on this podcast is migraines are a very common symptom with Lyme disease. And they're generally a first symptom of people, you know, many years before they get diagnosed. And before you even got diagnosed, you were treating with a naturopath who helped you treat your SIBO and candida. And you said, because of treating the SIBO and candida, which you believe were a consequence of a weakened immune system from Lyme, you were able to tolerate more foods and foods in general would not trigger these debilitating migraines like they did before. So can you talk to us about how you learned about the connection between severe migraines and gut health with your, with your naturopath 
And I think that's going to help a lot of people listening who are struggling to identify the root causes of their migraines with Lyme disease. Yeah, you know, um, I when I went to go see her and we tested for SIBO and tested for Candida, um, I delved deep into that. And I, I realized that when I was eating foods that were high in certain carb- carbohydrates, which I was because I was a vegetarian at that point. And so I was eating a lot of, I was eating all FODMAPs, which just feed that bad bacteria, right? Small intestine bacterial overgrowth. And so I was eating a lot of those and, you know, lentils, um, lots of fruit and um, lots of carbs. And those were all feeding that bad bacteria. And when that bad bacteria ate the food that I was eating and stole, you know, all my nutrients, then they would release toxins and those toxins would cause my migraines. And so so it was just kind of this vicious cycle going round and round, not knowing that I was with my diet feeding them. And just to be clear, when I treated the first time, the doctor that I treated with didn't bring that up. And so I quickly, right after treatment, you know, didn't bring up that my vegetarian diet was basically fueling SIBO. Not that it was the root cause, right? I want to be clear about that because it was Lyme that was suppressing my immune system, right? That was the root cause, but I was eating all this food that just fed SIBO. So even though I treated, I quickly relapsed because I continued on the same diet. And I think so much of this is that cascading effect, right? Where the Lyme caused the SIBO and the Candida caused the migraines because the, the SIBO and the Candida were eating the food. They were replicating, they were releasing toxins, which caused your body to create inflammation and migraines. So it's, it's that, that, that cascading yeah. effect and that upstream and downstream effect of all the things going on in our bodies. But it's important to know, even if we're struggling with Lyme, there are things we can do to experience some temporary relief to our symptoms like migraines. And I think that's an yeah. important tip you just gave us there, Gabrielle. So thank you. So and also it's interesting if you're treating with a naturopath who generally is a little bit, we like to call it Lyme woke. Naturopaths are a little bit more Lyme woke than general doctors, right? So did Lyme get brought up when you finally accepted that you were going to see a naturopath? Because you did mention that you were a little hesitant being a nurse, right? Coming from Western medicine to go see that naturopath. But I guess things got so bad that you did. And when yeah. you finally did see that naturopath, was Lyme ever brought up or tick-borne illness ever brought up, you know, in the beginning, especially when you were doing things like SIBO and candida treatments? Yeah, she did. And it was just part of their initial patient workup. And so I was tested via ELISA and Western blot and came back negative and we just moved on. You know, it was, it was never brought up again. It wasn't on our radar at all. And so we just treated my gut. And when I relapsed again, I thought, well, something is wrong with this approach. So I need to switch doctors. And so I switched to a functional medicine doctor who treated me again, but before treating me had a very honest conversation with me and said, you know, how long have you been vegetarian? And I said, since in utero, that's just how I was raised. And that's how I've always eaten. And he said, you have two options. You can treat for SIBO again, and you will likely relapse if you stick on the same diet. I have not had success treating a vegetarian and not having them relapse because the diet is so high FODMAP, um, FODMAP heavy, and your your you know the likelihood of relapsing is going to be high. The likelihood of relapsing with SIBO is high anyways, but you're increasing that by sticking to this diet. So I'm not going to tell you what to do, but if you increase some meat products and try to diversify your diet in that way, then you're going to automatically eat less FODMAPs and the risk of relapsing is going to be less. 
And, you know, like I mentioned earlier, I was a mom at this point and I just thought I need to, I need to heal. And if I keep treating with antibiotics, what's going to be left of my gut microbiome by the end of this? Like I have to, I have to do this. And so I started eating meat, which was a whole adventure in and of itself because I'd never had meat before. And the key, one of the key things, so that was a key part of my healing and not relapsing again and having these migraines improve, even though the Lyme diagnosis was there. The second part was spore probiotics and spore probiotics make it to where they need to go without getting killed in your, in your, in your stomach by acid. Um, and they get there and then they can do their job in crowding out bad gut bacteria. And so those two key pieces made such a difference. And I never relapsed again, despite going through, you know, Lyme treatment with antibiotics. So I want to unpack that a little bit more, Gabriel. So when you say you never relapsed again, you never relapsed with SIBO or Candida. Is that what you mean? Exactly. Yeah. Okay. And when you said that you talked about obviously having to change your diet, eat more meats, and also take the spore probiotics, which would help replenish good bacteria and basically push out the bad bacteria in your gut to promote an environment for SIBO and Candida not to really be able to live, right? But you also yeah. mentioned taking antibiotics as well. So were you using antibiotics to treat the SIBO and Candida for your gut too? Yeah. Yeah. And about how long or, you know, even if it was on and off in total, about how long were you on antibiotics for? Uh, for a couple of months, because I had to treat a second time, right? And each course is, is two weeks. And I treated both time for um, Candida and for SIBO. So yeah, a couple of months. And when you went from your naturopath to the new functional medicine practitioner you were treating with, and he said to you, hey, look, you can't be a vegetarian, you're eating too many high FODMAP foods, and you need to eat meat. Just for our listeners, can you explain what is a FODMAP food and what types of foods will allow things like SIBO and candida, which are really, I guess we should even backtrack, what is SIBO and candida? That's an overgrowth of, I guess, fungus in your gut or your GI tract. Is that correct? Candida, yeah. Yeah, it's just yeast and overgrowth. We all have it. You know, there has to be a balance of it, um, you know, in order for it not to become pathogenic in that way. And I think the hard thing with Lyme patients is that our immune system is suppressed. So we all have it and then it can go wild um, because there's nothing keeping it in check. And when it goes wild or grows in an abundance, it can cause a lot of symptoms, GI related symptoms, stomach pain, migraines, leaky gut, inflammation, things like that, right? Depression, anxiety. Yeah. Everything. Yeah. So basically everything. Yeah. And then, so if you can now... So what is a FODMAP food? So how did, what have you learned? What are foods that will allow SIBO and candida to grow and become overwhelming and in abundance to make you sick? And what are foods that are going to support your body and not promoting an environment where these things can grow? Yeah. So FODMAPs are, um, I think the easiest way to explain it is that they're foods that are rich in um, oligosaccharides, which is, I think the best you know, foods like lentils, foods that um, are really high in sugar, foods that, you know, all of those contribute to SIBO and feed it. Um, so I think the best, if you look at a vegetarian diet, all of those foods that are super healthy foods, right, that you would think would just benefit your body and just help heal your body, when your gut is out of balance, are foods that are actually feeding that imbalance. I think that's the least complicated way to, to look at it, that 
you know, foods like lentils, right? Foods mm-hmm. like beans, um, which in a vegetarian diet, you have a lot of. And that and makes all com- of those. Yeah. Oh, sorry, Gabriel. That makes complete sense. And I know Jenny can probably speak to this because as the editorial, or I'm sorry, we're going to butcher your title there, Jenny, for Dr. Rolls, but Dr. Rolls has his diet plan for people with chronic Lyme disease, and it does focus on these types of foods. So Jenny, can you weigh in a little bit and just share what some, some foods are that, are that are good foods to eat when you're dealing with candida and SIBO for our listeners? Uh, sure. Um, really, it's the carbohydrates that are, that are kind of causing the trouble and fueling the microbes in the gut. So um, anything that is you know, like lessening your carbohydrate intake and reducing your sugar intake. So like Dr. Rawls always says, eat more vegetables than anything else. That's his, his favorite thing. Um, also cooking the food. If, if, if you are eating a lot of vegetables and, and you're having trouble digesting them, like in a raw form, cooking them is, is a helpful strategy. Um, and then uh, healthy sources of protein like eggs and chicken fish if you can handle it um low sugar fruits like berries uh and then um healthy fats like avocado olive oil and those sorts of things those usually tend to be on the low FODMAP sort of scale um but that's kind of his general healthy diet so, so I do want to bounce back over, Gabrielle, because you did mention that they did run the Elisa and the Western blot at the naturopath, and I'm assuming they came back negative, right? Yeah. Okay. Will you ever talk to you about the fact that these tests aren't perfectly accurate and you can still have a negative and still have Lyme disease or possibly another tick-borne illness for that, for that matter? So, you know, did they look at co-infections? Did they tell you that it could have been a false negative? No, they, they never did. I, I think part of what contributed to that is that California is viewed by many as not being a high risk state when it comes to Lyme. And so it's not, it's not something that she discussed with me. And when I looked at what the CDC recommended, which was like my Bible at that time, because as a nurse, that's part of who rules your practice. Um, I, when I looked at it and I thought, well, yeah, the CDC recommends these two tests. Like I, I believe these results, you know, and I didn't really give it, much thought after that right because to me it was like we've we've tested with the best of what we can test with like that is really what I thought at that time we've tested with the best of what we can test with and I'm negative so clearly that has been ruled out. Gabriel, talk to us about what it's like living in California with Lyme disease because you know we're from well at least Rich and I are from New York and it, although it's still a controversial disease it's a little bit more well known here than it is in California and we had a past guest, Danny Tiger, who told us that she will specifically look on our podcast to find fellow California guests because she wants to be able to connect with them and relate with them. And we've had some, but not many. And she said that just the awareness out there is just non-existent and people don't even believe you can get Lyme there. And it's just really, really bad. So I'm, I'm assuming you being a nurse and now treating with a naturopath, if you treat with a naturopath here in New York, Lyme would have been probably more of a prominent discussion and it would have been brought yeah. up that you can have a false negative and that there are co-infections and there are things like that that can happen. So do you think that's, that's a difference between the West Coast and the East Coast and that you're at a disadvantage there and you have to do even more than we do to raise awareness to these tick-borne illnesses that you clearly contracted in California? I mean, I think that it's definitely not on the radar for practitioners in general. And when you think about the general population, they do not feel that 
it is a high risk disease for people in California. You know, I think it's viewed more of as an East Coast thing and not something that we need to be, you know, hypervigilant or really that wary about. Like, I, I think that I think that pretty much sums it up. And I have mixed feelings about your experience so far. And we know, obviously, you're going to get a Lyme diagnosis because this is a Lyme podcast. But it's just it's interesting because you were getting to, I'll call them secondary conditions like SIBO and Candida and your migraines. And you were successfully triaging them. You were using this, you know, you were using Botox to address your migraines and get symptomatic relief. You were doing protocols, whether it's antibiotics, whether it was a spore probiotics, whether it was changing your diet, and you were addressing the SIBO and Candida. But these things kept coming back because there was something deeper, right? So all these secondary yeah. conditions you were treating, you were getting relief. But on one hand, I feel like that was probably really prolonging your eventual Lyme diagnosis. But on the other hand, you were getting relief. Like, how do you feel about that looking back? Do you think it hurt you or helped you? I mean, you know, it's, I, I've mixed emotions about your, your story here so far. Yeah, I mean, I'm definitely glad I was able to get some kind of relief so that I can continue to be present some you know somewhat present as a mom not in the way I would have liked but yeah you know all of these medications just served as band-aids over the years and it allowed the disease to continue to snowball and grow and just take over every body system as time went on because I had these band-aids right so I'm grateful in the sense that without them I don't know how I could have been a mom day to day, which is, you know, I view it as my most important job. And I, I don't know how I could have done it with a newborn. Um, and at the same time, you know, I have a lot of mixed feelings about that too. It allowed for the disease to go unchecked because I was handling these symptoms and with a gold standard to be clear, right. For, for migraines and for interstitial cystitis, like I was on prostate meds at one point to treat interstitial cystitis. And I was following the gold standard for all of these things. And then Lyme was, was, was growing. So I have a lot of mixed feelings about it too. Gabriela, are, are, not to get you personal, but are you married? I am. Yeah. Okay. So one of the things that I find so unique in the Lyme community, and both you and Jenny share this, is you've been able to get through a Lyme journey and salvage your marriage. In fact, Jenny is very happy in her marriage, and it sounds like you probably are as well. So if you maybe you and Jenny can just have a quick discussion about what it was like going through the thick of it when you were at your worst and how you managed to keep your relationship, communicate with your spouse, and now when you're through it, be stronger on the other end. And that's super uncommon. We have two people on this interview right now that have gone through it and been successful. So if you can just talk a little bit about that for people that are listening, have a boyfriend, a girlfriend, a husband, a wife, children involved, and you know, they're close to divorce, you know, or, or tr trying to figure out how to maintain their romantic relationships while being so sick with Lyme disease. Oh, Matt, that is a podcast all in itself. <laughs> that's probably a series. I have to be honest. I mean, I, I really, truly have to be honest. That is, that is not an, a, a neatly packaged answer. <laughs> it's really, I don't know, Gabrielle, if you feel the same way, but you know, my like my husband never only knew me as well for a very short time, maybe six months, and all of the rest of sixteen to seventeen years, I've been sick. So varying degrees 
but um you know at one point i was bedridden for like two years so uh there has just been like a lot of <laughs> there's just been a lot i mean I, I i don't even know how to i don't even know how to answer that is specifically um i think it depends on people and I a hundred percent see why a hundred percent understand why people don't always make it. Um, you know, I like I, I, people, people used to say to me, um, you're so, you know, you're so lucky your husband stays with you. That's like the comment I used to get a lot. You're so lucky your husband stays with you. And even at my sickest, I, something about that didn't resonate with me. And so I started responding with, well, just because I'm sick, like, he's also lucky to have me too, you know, like, this was never like, I'm not a victim. And this isn't like, he's, I'm, he's lucky to have me. Oh, you know, I'm, I'm a victim. It's like, I'm sick, and I'm struggling. And I, I do believe things are going to change. But I still have worth and value. And he knows it. And I know it, like, I know I, I still do. So for me, that was, that was like, cause like I got sick in my 20, I was in my twenties and when I first got sick. So for me, that was, that was a, definitely a comment that I encountered a lot. Oh, he's so lucky to, you're so lucky he stays with you. And I was like, I'm still me. Like, hello, it's still the person he fell in love with. It's doesn't gone. It's just, you know, hampered, hindered, but still here. And that's probably meant with the best of intentions, but I feel it's a very toxic comment to make you're lucky that yeah. he's still with you, right? I mean, because it devalues your self-worth and makes you feel 100%. that you're not worthy. And I think that just will make the problem even worse and will lead to some people not having successful relationships because of that mindset that's put into it. But Jenny, you're saying that you had to say, no, I have worth, I bring worth, I'm going yeah. to get better. And this is not poor Jenny, you know, and oh, Tom's wonderful because he's staying with her even though she's so sick and, you know, and, and it's that, that, that weird mentality of it, right? So Gabrielle, how do you, how do you approach this? I'm curious to see if your thoughts are consistent or if you have any, any, you know, differences with Jenny's comments here. You know, I think it was, I got sick two years into being married. And so my husband saw me go from someone that was healthy to all of a sudden having these mystery ailments pop up every few months. And then having months where I was relatively okay, in part because of the medications that I was taking, right, to address these symptoms. And I was always on the lookout for the next doctor to try to help me. And so I think that he felt powerless in trying to figure out what was happening because he trusted me to be my own nurse advocate and just wanted to support me along the way. And I think that there were definitely frustrating periods with you know, where he felt so frustrated, where he thought, why can't these people figure out what's wrong with you? You're going to all the right people. And so I think that he was frustrated with me instead of frustrated at me. Um, and so it, we kind of, it felt kind of like we banded together as a team to try to figure out what was wrong. Um, but Gabriel, I'm curious. So I, I think it's great that he was frustrated with you and not at you. And that's a really important mindset for a significant other to have when being with somebody with, with tick-borne illness. But I guess the question I have is because we interviewed, I'm going to reference Danny again, who her significant other, you know, was very supportive, but at times you can't help but creep in the thoughts of, are you really sick? Especially when doctors are telling you, you know, it's not that bad. You just have this and you're going to treat and get better and you're not getting better. And years go on. I mean, you went from, you were 35 and you got sick and you got diagnosed with 42, Gabriella. So you went seven years. 
Was there yeah. ever a time that your husband doubted you? And if so, how did it impact your relationship? Um, he didn't doubt my symptoms. He believed me fully and just um, honestly just felt compassion for me kind of crumbling before his eyes over the years. And so I think that there was no point where he didn't believe my symptoms. We just didn't know what was at the root of them or why it was so hard to find a solution. So he just supported me through it as so I, I like looked after specialists after specialists and just, you know, when I would arrive home and just was so disappointed that this practitioner didn't have the answers I was looking for. And I kind of had to restart the whole process again to find another practitioner who could potentially have answers. Um, he was just, you know, he felt a lot of compassion and sadness for me. Like it, it wasn't, I wasn't leaving any stone unturned. I wasn't, you know, and he just wanted to support me through it. So we're talking about what they brought to the table. Jenny kind of touched on what she brought to the table, which was I'm not a victim and I have worth. So Gabriela, from your standpoint, what did you bring to the table? Because I know you must have, and you for sure brought something to the table to keep this marriage sound and in a healthy place. And as Jenny said, it's not all sunshine and, and you know all good thoughts and good things. There's obviously struggles there. But what did you bring to the table? What techniques did you learn from your perspective that allowed you to be successful to get through this journey with your husband and be, and, and be in the place you are today, feeling better and still having a successful marriage? I think one of the things I had to learn was how to be really vulnerable and communicate exactly what I was feeling, which was hard for me because I just was kind of used to like solving my own problems and just, you know, pushing through. And so I think that not that it was not that I was able to do it perfectly every time or that the process was perfect, but I think that I just kept going back to that place of sharing all the things that I was feeling and trying to do it from, from a vulnerable place and also sharing how powerless and lost I felt, right? So he was very used to seeing me in that nurse advocate role, right? As a union rep for our unit and handling those things, like even on my off days and now I was sharing that I felt powerless, that I didn't know who held the answers for my healing, that I honestly didn't know if I could get back to that healthy place because no one could figure out what was wrong with me. And I think that sharing that very much shook him, right? To hear me now from this disempowered place of like, I still work at the bedside. I'm still in that empowered nurse advocate role at work. But when I exercise that for myself, I wasn't in that empowered place. And I just kept sharing that. Like, I don't know what's wrong with me. I don't know what to do. I have seen every specialist I can possibly think of seeing here in the city that is great. And it's, you know, I, I, we lived in San Francisco. There were dozens and dozens of, of great specialists for every specialty um, that I could see at UCSF, at Sutter, at Stanford. And I... I was seeing all of them. And so I think that his anger was toward the, the establishment and not toward me. So I want to move on now chronologically because you were 
after you started dealing with the SIBO and the candida, you're at your fun functional medicine doctor, you're changing your diet, you're no longer a vegetarian. What happened next? Did you continue to crash with your health? Did you have a period of time where you were better and then crashed again? Because we know ultimately you're, you're going to land on this Lyme diagnosis. So walk us through that period of time there. Yeah, I dramatically improved. I felt great. <laughs> I had never felt better than when I started eating meat. I could not believe it. And I think that one of the key turning points was reading when I went to go see this functional medicine doctor at that same practice, the doctor that wrote paleovedic diet worked there. And when I read this book, he, he shared his, his decision to eat meat and his body type and Ayurveda and, you know, all of these different things. And so I, I took everything, I cherry picked everything from that book that I could and implemented it for myself. And so here I was like, I hadn't eaten meat before this, but now I was like chugging bone broth. I was having, you know, figuring out different meats. I was eating pork. Like, it, I mean, for me, it was wild. It was a wild, like, you know, it was a wild change in lifestyle. And I felt great. Like my body desperately needed those amino acids to hold me afloat. Um, and so I, I noticed this big improvement and I felt great. I felt so great for a handful of months. Not that all of those symptoms went away, right? I was still getting injections to my scalp, right? Um, I got occipital nerve blocks to try to block the pain uh, for my migraines. I still had flushing, so I was still trying to see dermatologists. My interstitial cystitis went into remission for a bit. And I think it just speaks to, you know, about 80% of your immune system is housed in your gut. And here I was doing everything to tend to my gut that my gut had not received before then. And my gut received it well. And so I, I had this kind of resurgence and I felt great. And I thought, okay, now we're like, now we're on the path to healing. This is it. This was it. This was clearly it. Like, this is, this is amazing. Oh, I'm so happy. And I kind of just tried to pick off, pick up where my life had left off before I started getting sick. And so I benefited greatly from treating my gut. And I was able to kind of buy some time, which didn't really buy me time because Lyme continued to unfold, right? But when it came to my day-to-day -day and how I felt and who I could be as a mom and as a wife, it did buy me time. I wish your story ended there, Gabriella, and I know it doesn't. And it sounds like this was short-lived for a few months. So walk us through after having this great bounce back and having your quality of life improve what happened next because the lime is still brewing underneath and you weren't aware of that yeah um so the symptoms started again you know interstitial cystitis the migraines got even worse somehow um and i the migraines were so intense and so bad that the botox injections occipital nerve blocks and the migraine medication that i was taking uh, when they, when I would get these migraines was no longer enough to actually get rid of the pain. And by this time, you know, I had a, I think she was about eight months old. Uh, I had a little one that was needing more and more of my attention as she became more mobile and I was starting to get more sick. And so there were times where I the pain was so intense. These migraines were so intense. They weren't like anything I had experienced before. And they were even worse than before I treated my gut symptoms. And I just could not figure that out because my gut was clearly in a much better place. And I started having to go to the ER to get IV cocktails for my migraines 
And so I would get oxygen, I would get an IV cocktail, and then I would go home. And these ER docs had the best of intentions in helping me with my pain, but none of them had any idea what the root cause was. And they would just refer me back to my primary care provider to follow up. And I, this, is, this is why like, I continued to seek out doctor after doctor. And at that point, I wasn't just seeing Western medicine doctors, but I was seeing cranial sacral therapists. I was seeing plenty of acupuncturists that, acupuncturists that I had seen along the way in my journey. And I still wasn't getting any answers but I was having to go to the ER, you know, every week or every other week to get these IV cocktails and oxygen. And I think your experience is not uncommon. We interviewed Dr. Agarwal last night, who was a pain management doctor and an anesthesiologist, you know, in Western medicine, worked at a hospital. And she recently pivoted over to work for an integrative medicine clinic because she realized that she can do more and that she was failing a lot of patients and that she was really just helping band-aid these things didn't have enough time to really work with her, her patients. And now she's moved on and she's learned a lot to be from her background in Western medicine and now learning Eastern medicine. And she's combining the two to get to the root cause and look at the body as a whole. So I feel like for sure there's some sort of pattern here because the podcast that's going to drop before this is going to be Dr. Agarwal and now yours. I mean, it's almost like the model of these types of doctors is to just band-aid us, especially in the ER. And even with your primary care physician, right? They're looking at you and they're trying to Port you out to specialists and not having that holistic integrative approach to healing. So do you think that was a part of the problem, even though it was California, Lyme wasn't as well known, that they were just sort of band-aiding you at the, at the ER, the specialists were focusing in on what their specialty was. You have migraines. What's, what could be causing the migraine? Okay. You have interstitial cystitis. What can be causing that? But nobody's looking at, well, what can be contributing to all of these things together collectively in your body as a whole, right? I mean, that's kind of where I feel like we fail as a society in regards to medicine. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I think that, you know, when it comes to conventional medicine, that's part of the problem, right? That care is so fragmented and that these specialties don't communicate with each other. But also, I think when you look deeper is that, especially when it comes to chronic illness, um, which migraines are a part of, no, no one is looking for the root cause. No one's, no one's going through a whole battery of tests the minute you walk in trying to figure out what that root cause is. So, I mean, how long did you have to suffer like this? I mean, you're getting some pretty aggressive treatment. You're going to the ER to get IV infusions for your migraines. How long did this go on before you finally got your Lyme diagnosis? Um, this went on for quite some time. Again, because the Botox injections and occipital nerve blocks bought me some time. And I had periods where I would improve somewhat. And... Then I had periods where I was worse. I never stopped looking for answers, but I think that I wasn't able to look as aggressively as I was before in part because I was now um, taking my daughter to preschool and you know, I was a teacher there as you know, a parent teacher there. And so those things took up a bulk of my time and I was just, in the midst of that, still trying to get answers. I think what changed is that, so I was still functional throughout all, all of it, right? When I, when I treated my gut as my gut 
was able to get a little bit stronger in my immune system was as well, then, you know, those things bought me time along the way. I think that what really made things spiral out was that my MCAS, which I hadn't been diagnosed with, started to really snowball. And I had met a woman who had Lyme disease and she had a pick and she would miss a lot of days as parent teacher because she was ill. And I didn't, you know, over the years, I would look up Lyme sometimes just because I, I wondered like what, you know, what chronic illness disease can cause this myriad of symptoms in every body system? Like what disease can actually do that? And Lyme kept coming up on my radar. But when I would read about it and when I would read about what the CDC is about it, the CDC says about it, which you have to remember, the CDC was still my Bible. I was working at the bedside as a nurse. Um, I, I thought, no, well, I would have had a rash and I don't have all these other symptoms. I just have these symptoms. So I don't think it can be that. And when I reached out to this woman and I said, hey, you know, who do you see for your doctor? I have seen everyone I can possibly see here in the city, um, who do you see? And she said, oh, I see um, this doctor in San Francisco and he's the one that finally diagnosed me with Lyme disease. He deals with complicated patients all the time. You should go see him. And when I went to go see him, I wanna be clear that I knew I had MCAS, just be I read so many medical journals about it and I was convinced that I had it, but I didn't know what was causing it. I didn't think I had Lyme when I went in to go see him because I thought that those two tests had ruled that out. There was no part of, in my mind that thought, oh, these, the CDC recommends this two-tier testing system, and there's no way that, that it could be wrong in my mind. So, but Gabriella, just, this just proves that these guidelines or these false beliefs being put out in the mainstream is so harmful to people. I mean, and you're a perfect example of this, right? You believed that you did not have Lyme disease because you tested negative on the two-tier testing, despite the fact that there are countless studies showing how inaccurate those tests are together, right? The two-tier testing. Yeah. So I think that in itself for people that aren't in this community is doing so much damage to people that are probably out there today. And we know there's probably a ton of them who have thought about Lyme, got tested, came up negative and still suffering greatly, but have ruled out Lyme because of a negative test. So I think it's a really important point to stress for everybody listening to make sure that they share that with people because we know that and we sometimes take that for granted. We have to make sure that the general public is aware of that as well. So, I mean, so we, we call this, you know, Rich and I like to call it bro science and, you know, or sister science. So in your case, it was it was a mom of a student with you know in, in school where you were you were parent teaching with with your son and she had you said a pick line in and it was treating Lyme disease but you didn't think you had a Lyme but so I'm guessing she had MCAS related to Lyme disease which is why you asked her who her doctor was is that correct? Uh, she didn't have MCAS at that point um, but I asked her because I thought you know she's been able to find some degree of healing at by this by this point and she wasn't in remission just yet, but I thought I need to ask someone that dealt with a complicated disease, like what the public views as a complicated disease. And that's why I thought she was my, my avenue to healing. And that's why I asked her, I, I was desperate. I, you know, I, I just, I needed someone to point me in some different direction than the one I'd been going in. And what made you believe you had mast cell activation syndrome? So what, other symptoms did you have that you were correlating with that based on your research before you went and met with this doctor in San Francisco? Yeah, you know, I didn't, I didn't have, 
when I, when I did allergy testing, you know, all of my testing was negative. And so I thought, I don't have allergies on the immune level. And as much as my gastroenterologist refers to them as allergies, there has to be something else causing these rashes and migraines and anxiety and sleep disturbances and facial flushing and, you know, so many different other symptoms that, that um, MCAS patients have. And so when I, 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 I read so many medical journals about it just because I wanted to make sure, like, am I headed in the right direction? And when I, everything that I read about it was everything I was experiencing. So talk to us about when you went and met with this doctor. I think it was Dr. Misha Greer. I'm probably mispronouncing yeah. his name. It's a naturopath, correct? Yeah. So- yeah, he's a naturopath. He's an integrative doctor. And the, the first time that I met with him was peak COVID, it was 2020, not peak COVID, it was, I mean, COVID was starting to ramp up. So it was February, 2020. And I ended up having to see him over Zoom because, you know, practices were just so restricted at that point. And when I explained all of my symptoms, he agreed that MCAS is probably what we were looking at. And we decided to do the standard testing for, for MCAS. And so I had to get off of uh, the medications that I was on in order to do the testing. And we did the testing and the results came back all normal. It was just like textbook, beautiful, just (laughs) totally normal results. And I said, well, where do we go from here? I still have all of these, you know, physical symptoms. And so as much as all of my labs are normal, just as they have been, um, through conventional medicine for the past seven years, what, what, did, what, do we, what do we do from now, you know, from here? And he said, well, I'm going to diagnose you with MCAS based on clinical symptoms. And that is often what has to be done with this disease. It's a newer diagnosis and it's poorly understood, but I believe that you have MCAS. And in that moment for someone to say like, I believe that you have this was just like everything I needed to hear. And I knew that I had landed at the right place. And that, that was just so validating to just get that diagnosis, right? Not that it gave me answers about what was causing it, but just to have those symptoms validated and to have that clinical diagnosis in my chart as this legit diagnosis of, yes, this is why your body is falling apart right now. This is why you have these migraines after you eat. This is why you know, your histamine is through the roof. This is why you see all of these physical manis- manifestations of it but you have this disease. And I just clung to that in that moment because it was finally an answer, an explanation of not, of not just, oh, you have this symptom, here's this disease, here's this label of what you have, but this is part of why you have all of those symptoms. So what did you do with Dr. Greeter to treat MCAS and when did Lyme come into the picture after this diagnosis? Yeah, it came into the picture the following month. I initially was placed on um, an antihistamine. And I actually had to get it made by a compounding pharmacy because my body would react to the excipients, like the fillers and the different things that are really unnecessary, but it's makes medication cheaper to make, to put, to add those things to it. And my body would react to those things. And that's one of the big symptoms of MCAS, right? Is that you react to all of these things that the average person might not react to, but you react to. And so I was placed on an antihistamine 
that was made by a compounding pharmacy and I finally got some relief. And he also placed me on Ion Biome Gut Support. It's humic acid and it, it just helps. It's kind of like fertilizer for your gut and it helps like good bacteria grow and it decreases food intolerances. And so over the next weeks, I was able to re reintroduce a couple more foods because at this point I was only able to tolerate five foods. I could have boiled chicken, white rice, kale, um, yeah, collard greens, I think, and blueberries. And that was all I could eat at that point. And so I was slowly over the next few weeks, over the next month, I was able to add a couple more foods in and I was ecstatic because I love food so much. And all of a sudden I could only have these five foods and I was so miserable. And so when we met the next month, he asked me how I was doing. I told him I had improved, but I said, you know, I'm still experiencing all of these other symptoms. And I just, I don't know what's, what's wrong with me, what's causing these symptoms. And I'll never forget when he said, we met over Zoom again. And he said, you know, one of your bands is a little suspicious and I've, you have so many broad symptoms at this point. And I've seen this before. And I really think that we should test for Lyme. And, you know, looking back, I just like want to hug my old self because I said, oh no, I, we ruled that out in 2016. I, I don't, I, I, I tested negative for that. And he said, you know, this, this is a, a practitioner that he knew in the community and the medical community. And he said, you know, yeah, you know, she tested with, these two tests. And I, I know that, that you feel that we've ruled this out, but I, I really think we have to test with a different test in order to, to truly, to truly rule that out. And I was devastated because I thought this complicates everything and compounds everything. And it's not going to be a, Hey, let's give you this three month treatment for this, or, Hey, let's, let's do this gold standard treatment and just move forward and you'll be fine again. And I knew that, and I was devastated and I just explained that to him. And I asked him to explain to me why he felt that might be something that I was dealing with. And he explained, you know, the accuracy of the tests or lack of accuracy of the tests and just wanting to do due diligence, you know, around ruling that out. And I just, I, I, I trusted him enough at that point because we had a diagnosis for MCAS, you know, whereas no one else had been able to diagnose that. And I was improving and I thought, you know, he's right, we should rule it out and see if that's what we're dealing with. And so we tested via Igenix, and that was hard for me, I think, cause I was still thinking like a nurse and I thought, what is Igenix? What is this new test? Like, it's not, it's not exactly well-regarded by you know, conventional Western medicine. And, and I thought, well, what are you gonna lose? Like, look, look at your health right now and look at what your life has become right now. What are you going to lose if you take this test? Like, screw it, do the test and, and see what happens. And that's, that's what I did. I'm, I'm curious, like you said that he had clinically diagnosed, you know, mast cell for you. And so for so many people, Lyme is a clinical diagnosis because of the very thing you're talking about with, you know, the inaccuracy of the testing. 
And yeah. even though Igenix has a much higher sensitivity uh, rate than the average standard Western blot, it's still not 100% accurate. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious to know if he would have clinically diagnosed you with Lyme. Um, would that have been an answer that would have been acceptable to you? Or would you or would you have only reached, hey, there's really Lyme going on here with uh, physical you know, testing evidence? Um, I think that I was desperate enough to have received that if that's where we had arrived. But but I wanted the, the proof if we could have it just because I was so jaded at this point. He was the 45th practitioner, healthcare practitioner I had seen in the Bay area trying to get to the root of my symptoms. And at this point I needed, I needed that. Like my soul, my soul just needed that uh, to know that we were really headed in the right direction and that I wasn't going to waste, you know, seven more years of my life totally makes sense. So at this point, did you test just for Lyme disease or were you looking for co-infections as well through Igenix? Yeah, he, he tested for everything. He did a, he did a broad panel um, and we tested for everything. And what were the results? Know, obviously Lyme was positive, right? But I'm curious, was there anything yeah. else that popped? Yeah, no, that, that was it. And I remember looking at it you know, page after page, I remember looking at it and thinking like, this has been it. And I was just so emotional. Um, I can't help but like relive those, those moments because there was just so much packed into it, right? Like I finally had an answer and it was on paper and it was something that just spoke to me, right? Like, you know, as a nurse, you look at your patient's labs every day, every shift sometimes multiple times a shift if you have, you know, that many labs with a critical patient. And so here it was sitting before me, like in the language that I understood fully, right? And I finally had an answer for seven years of misdiagnosis. And it just felt huge. And as much as it was devastating to realize that that disease had been misdiagnosed for so long and stolen so many moments, from my daughter's upbringing that I didn't get to be fully present for. Um, I felt so much relief knowing that I finally had something in writing that explained this, you know, these dozens of symptoms that no one else could explain. And so I just, I felt relief and I was heartbroken at the same time. And I think that yeah, it, it felt so complicated, but it, it felt like I, I finally was where I needed to be. So talk to us about now that you have this diagnosis and you realize what was going on at the core, what you did with Dr. Greeter to treat Lyme disease. Yeah, so he, you know, I was in a tricky place because my body, MCAS, could not tolerate a lot of different treatment options. You know, he was very open-minded about, you know, following an herbal approach or um, doing, you know, going with antibiotics. And I think that when I, we finally had these answers and I was so grateful for him and my trust in that moment just kind of ballooned because I felt like 
He had given me answers that I looked for for so many years. I just said, what's the most aggressive treatment that we can do right now? And whatever it is, that's what I want to do. And he explained the benefit of pulsed antibiotics and his, his, you know, the outcomes that he had had in his private practice. And I just said, okay, let's do it. Um, and I started that week on pulsed antibiotics. You know what kind of antibiotic? So this is pulsed IV antibiotics, correct? Yeah, yeah. I was on ceftriaxone um, IV antibiotics, and they were pulsed. So I would go in different days on different weeks, right, to just kind of surprise and shock the Lyme bacteria. And then I was also on oral Tindamax, which acts as a um, biofilm disruptor. And then I was on a natural biofilm disruptor as well. And I did that for about nine months. And I think, uh, you know, I'll never forget that after the first treatment, I literally, when I left that clinic, I felt euphoric. Like my body was just euphoric and I, I couldn't explain it. I couldn't explain the science behind it, but it was just like my body was so grateful to get some backup now to try to get rid of this pathogen. But that was something that I had never experienced before and I'll never forget it because there were just these little reminders sprinkled along the way as much as it was a hard journey for the next nine months of IV and oral antibiotics of like, yes, you're healing, you're headed in the right direction. You know, you're getting little pieces of your life back and you wouldn't be if you weren't headed in the right direction. Gabriela, walk us through the next nine months. So you're on the IV ceftriaxone, which I think is also, you know, Recephin is a brand name of that. And the, and the yeah. oral Tindamax, right? And then you were doing some other things too for biofilms. You must have had an up and down journey, right? It's never linear. So walk us through the nine month period and, and you know, the ebbs and flow of, of your health at that time. Yeah, um, I, think the, I think it's important to recognize that I would not have been able to power through how hard it is to kill Lyme bacteria, if I had not been seeing a great acupuncturist who that same friend referred me to, who had seen many Lyme patients uh, across the decades and had been able to successfully treat them um, while they went through treatment. And so I happened to land with these two people that knew exactly what to do with me for me to be able to weather the storm. And so I saw her one to two times a week and she was very different you know, it's still it's something that I don't take for granted. And it's still something that I'm so grateful for. You know, when you go to a regular doctor's office, you know, it's a 15 minute time slot. Um, you go in, you, you share what's going on with you. The doctor gives you some, you know, recommendations and then you leave and you don't see or hear from that doctor again, unless you reach out and make an appointment again. And it was something that really touched me, especially in those moments of going through something so hard that she would literally text me um, after appointments to check on me. And if I was going through a really bad spot, she would ask me to come in so that she could treat me during that time. And that really helped, especially when I was in the depths of herxine. And I had no idea how to, how to properly detox um, and how to help my body along. And she, without her, I could not have weathered the storm. So there were definitely a lot of ups and downs. 
and sprinkled in between here and there, I was getting pieces of my life back, right? Like as the antibiotics decreased the bacterial load, I got little pieces of myself back, right? Like I could actually go for a walk. I could eat certain foods and not get this blaring migraine that would destroy my day. I felt more hopeful, obviously. I felt a little happier. I felt a little less anxious. I was sleeping a tiny bit better. And so there were these things that were sprinkled throughout in the midst of all the herxine, like th those were really bad periods. And I, I wanna share this part because I think that sometimes we don't share it because you know, we don't know how people will receive it, but there were certainly times during the herxine where I questioned being alive because it was that bad. And I had never felt that way about life, about myself. But there were, there were definitely days and times where I felt that. I just thought, like, if I was not a mother, if I did not have this partner who has supported me, you know, through this and wants to see me get better and we have this life together, but especially my daughter, like, if I was not a mother to this, to this little one, like, I, I could envision it in my head, like, I not, not being alive, like, not wanting to be alive. And I didn't understand at that point that Lyme bacteria cross the blood-brain barrier and can disrupt your mental health in so many ways. But I felt those things and they were very real things and they weren't like some abstract thought. Like I, I was living that. Gabriela, what specifically were you doing to detox? Because you mentioned that when you were having bad herxes, you, you had the two practitioners, one of them was helping you with dealing with, you know, all of these horrible symptoms that come along with herxing. So what specifically were you doing to address the pathogen die-off and allowing your body to purge these toxins and support your body throughout treatment? Yeah, I think that because my, my body was so testy, there were so many things I wanted to pile on, but my MCAS would not allow it. And so I had to rely mostly on acupuncture to flush those toxins out and eventually on drops, like drops is all I could tolerate of Mundipur, which is this German herbal brand um, of, of homeopathic supplements that help you detox. And I could literally tolerate one drop a day. And I, the rest, I kind of just had to write it out. And that's why those, those horrible thoughts, those intrusive thoughts felt so real, right? Because I had just had all these toxins that were, that were in me that I could not get rid of quickly enough. So when Mundipur, is that M-U-N-D-I-P-U-R? Is that the name? Yeah, yeah. And do you feel it helped you pretty well with detoxing and supporting detox throughout treatment? I think that it helped me enough to be able to get by. Um, it, it definitely was something I was so grateful to be able to have. And again, like that, that Western medicine mindset would set in of like, what is homeopathy? And when you look it up, it, you know, I think it's Wikipedia likens it to like air, like it's as effective as like air. It's not, it's not effective. And I thought, what is this? Like, what am I doing? And I thought, screw it. Don't think about it. Just take it. Like you're desperate. Look at this place that mm -hmm. you are in. Have you ever questioned being alive? Have you ever wanted to not be alive? Like you need to help yourself. And so here I was taking this, like it's called, it's Picana is the brand and taking these homeopathic drops and seeing my acupuncturist twice a week. And that's what I could do for detox at that point. And I just kind of tried to weather it, weather the storm. I think Jenny, do you want to say something? I said you turned the mic on. I don't know if you want to jump in. 
Oh, I was just thumbs upping those drops. Those drops are amazing. Those the yeah. pecana drainage. Yeah, it's, it's a uh, little kit. Did you have the kit? I didn't have the kit. No, I I couldn't. We didn't because of my MCAS. We didn't want to try Over, to introduce too yeah, much. Overtax so, it. Yeah. But that those drops, I was just like, I don't know what these drops are, but this is my new Bible. Like forget the CDC. <laughs> yeah. Like forget the CDC. This is this is Mundapur is where it's at. Yeah, so it comes in, a, it comes in, you can get it in two different ways. You can get them individually or you can get a Pecana drainage kit that has mm -hmm. three, I think, in it. Um, and they're great. I mean, I, similarly, that was one of the first things that I was able to tolerate too. And there's one, I don't even remember which one it was, but I used to feel like it drained my brain. <laughs> like, yeah, that it, it really could could clear up the 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 toxicity in the brain and the yeah the, the thoughts but also feeling like uh I used to have like this burning sensation constantly kind of in my head and I would feel like this drained the brain so and yeah like you I had done so many things that it wasn't just like a placebo effect it's like oh no we're in the thousands now for this yeah of, of of things to try for this to just be chalked up to placebo it's doing yeah. something. Yeah, that little glass bottle is it's humbling <laughs> to like to to acknowledge yeah. it. It's one drop and one drop was enough to help. So, well what is I, it though, Jenny? Wanted... Is it Pecana? P-E-K-A-N-A, is that what you were saying? Yeah. 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 Okay. Well, and I so I hope somebody please who's more who has more expertise in homeopathy as I do, if I understand correctly though with homeopathy actually the weaker doses have more the the strength so one drop potentially if is stronger than 14 to 15 drops actually like in how it, it works in your body i think i could be wrong correct me if i'm wrong but that that's really interesting i don't know we'll have to we'll have to definitely look that up but i mean i'm super interested personally in trying these drops i love trying new things just for fun you know just to see if i could feel any better so just for everybody listening it's pecana p-e-k-a-n-a -A, and it's a drainage kit jenny you're on which is i think a collection of three things right pecana drainage kit is that what you said yeah i don't take it anymore but yes that's what i, I used to take yeah Okay. And then Gabriela, you were taking specifically the Bacana Mundipur or M-U-N-D-I-P-U-R drops. That's one bottle of that, that brand, right? Yeah. Yeah. And Jenny, it helped you with, it sounds like your, your, your head pressure or your head sort of like a symptoms. It sort of like almost like drained your head. You said, you said, and I think it's a very common yeah. symptom with Lyme disease. So um, I think it's a great tool to recommend to everybody listening. So, all right, let's, let's, let's kind of now fast forward. So we're at the end of this, this nine month period. And you're treating with IV ceftriaxone, you're treating with oral Tindamax, you're doing all this, this cool stuff, you're doing this Pecana Mundapur, you're doing um, acupuncture. How are you feeling at the end of the nine month window now that you know you have Lyme disease, you're, you're concluding your IV antibiotic treatment, where's your health at? Yeah, so, you know, I was in a great place. I was still on ceftriaxone and that's why I was in a great place. <laughs> so we stopped testing. We did another test just to see where we are at, see what my IFA was and see what, what it looked like. And my IGENIX test came back just as positive. And I was devastated. I could not believe it that after nine months of never missing an appointment for pulsed antibiotics, we were still in the same place. And wow. I think that 
it was devastating to me because again, you know, normally when you look at a disease, there's a gold standard for treatment and there's a, you know, there's an estimated like period of time that you're going to have to treat and then your issue should be resolved or you should be functional to where you can start to look at not having to be on that medication forever, something like antibiotics. Right. And it didn't look like that for me. And I asked my doctor what we could do. And at that point he was getting everything ready to roll out SOT in his practice. And he mentioned a couple of things that we could do. One of them was continuing on antibiotics monthly for like the rest of my life. And a second was trying a psych drug that could have um, some pretty big side effects or SOT. And I decided to go with SOT. And it wasn't not a controversial decision in my head because there's not a lot of long-term data when you look at SOT when it comes to Lyme disease. Like sure, it's used to treat cancer, it's used to treat lots of different viruses, but there's nothing as far as long-term studies for Lyme. And that was so hard for me to take in. And then I thought, well, what's your alternative? Like, are you gonna continue on antibiotics forever and completely demolish anything you have in your gut, you know, microbiome left? Or, you know, what are you gonna do? And I thought, you know, I'm still very much positive for Lyme. And if this treatment can work for cancer and there's a lot of data around that and it can work for these viruses, then maybe it can work for Lyme and it's, it's, worth, it's worth doing. And so we tested for, for that. Um, and the test, it kind of blew my mind that the test you know, the lab draw was sent to London and it was, the test was done there in a lab to, it didn't just look for antibodies. I think the best way to explain it is it looks for actual bacterial particles of, of your tick-borne illness to see exactly what it is and to be able to properly identify it. And then once it's identified, that information is sent to a lab in Greece and the lab in Greece prepares your IV solution and that sends it back to your doctor and your doctor infuses it. And so it's pretty wild for me to wrap my mind around that. Like, we're really doing this, this is nuts. And we're really doing this, like a lab in London and a lab in Greece holds like my potential healing. And we have no idea what's in the solution. You know, I remember going to the nurse who was going to infuse it and asking him to be able to see the infusion. And he literally said, oh, it's pretty wild. It's like monkey farts. Look, there's, there's, look at this uh, tube. There's, there's nothing in it. It's like air, but this is your solution. And I just remember being so blown away by it and thinking like, he literally called it monkey farts. Like nobody truly <laughs> knows. Um, a ton about this, right? But this, like, and I really thought, like, God, what if, what if, what is, what have you come to, Gabriella? Like, this, you're down with this monkey fart solution if it can potentially heal you. And I was just like, yeah, you really are, because Lyme is a desperate and desolate place, and you cannot stay there for the rest of your life. And I just thought, like, yeah, I'm down with it. I'm gonna do this. 
<laughs> and we we did it. So this and is a, it, a personalized solution though, right? So they take your blood, they see what microbes in your blood or what tick-borne pathogens are in your blood. Then they develop this <laughs> treatment based yeah. on the analysis of your blood and what's in your blood. And then they administer that to you at a high level. I'm talking very high level here. And that, that solution then is, it helps you eradicate the pathogens in your body that were identified by the first lab. Is that kind of a general idea what, what happens with this SLT therapy? Yeah, yeah. I think the, the best way to, to say it is like, you know, this is, your, your specific bacteria is identified for yourself to like, you know, they're 98% sure that this is your bacteria. So, you know, a high rate, and then it's basically the key that is going to fit into the bacteria to disable it. And so it's, it's these antisense molecules that are wrapped up in, you know, mRNA and they attach to the Lyme bacteria and prevent it from replicating. And so these Lyme bacteria that have, you know, their 80 day life cycle um, are disabled and they die this like programmed cell death uh, because of these mRNA molecules. It's fascinating. This advanced science that we have today and, and just the potential for other people to benefit from this. And, and I'm really anxious to ask you though, Gabriella, how did it work for you? I mean, right. You still had active infections, according to your lab work, you were feeling a little bit better. You know, how did you respond to this SLT therapy? Yeah, um, my my MCAS went nuts. I think that there's not like a, a way to sugarcoat that. It really, my body was fighting against the Lyme bacteria, fighting against these, you know, invader mRNA molecules that were trying to help me, right? But MCAS is, is going to fight against something like that. And so my body just swelled up. Um, and I, weeks two through 10 were literally hell for me. And it was, it was like herxine, even though technically SOT doesn't cause herxine, right? It causes a programmed cell death, but it, it really was like herxine. And it was at that point that I gave in to something that I never thought I would, which is coffee enemas. And I, I mean, I, I just have to be really honest. I remember thinking, I am so desperate. I've gone to acupuncture. I am doing everything I can on my end to detox. It's not enough. And I don't know what to do. And, you know, by this point, I was connected with lots of people in the Lyme community who were touting the effects of like, oh, you have to do this coffee enema. And I just thought, well, let me see what it entails. And when I saw what it entailed, I was just like, they've got to be kidding me. Like, I can't do this. And then I thought, no, but you're so desperate. Like you are literally, this is not, you cannot continue this way. You have to help your body in some kind of way. And I did it. And I, I'll never forget like thinking, you know, you take the Florence Nightingale oath when you graduate as a nurse and you, um, you know, there's so many practices that you take on as a nurse. And I remember sitting there in my kitchen with this pot that I had bought and this like mold-free green coffee and putting it in there to cook it. And I had this like little dedicated strainer to like, to strain it. And I thought, what am I doing? I'm violating like every nursing principle here. And then I thought, are we doing this? And I thought, yeah, we're doing this because we're this desperate. So, you know, again, like everything you've believed in up until this point, 
is 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 great and i still believe in that practice but also sometimes there's more that's required and this is what's required right now and so i started doing these coffee enemas and then they really helped me weather the storm on a different level and that's kind of how i got through it you know acupuncture and coffee enemas and by the end of those 10 weeks um i started oh there were also these weird sensations that I would feel in my legs and it felt like hammering. And I just, you know, literally I would visualize that the mRNA molecules were attaching to the Lyme bacteria and disabling them. And I would just continue to visualize that like throughout the day, every time I felt that I would do that. And I, I gained a lot of faith in doing that, of visualizing it and, and thinking positively that way after watching the HEAL documentary and, and learning about the power of the mind and how, how much power your mind has over healing. And so I just kept doing that. And then we retested in the midst of that, we retested at six weeks and my test came back for we retested via PolySpot, so that same lab, and my test came back negative for any tick-borne disease at six weeks post-SOT. Wow. And how, how long did your MCAS flares last beyond that? Uh, I still have them. You still have them. So <laughs> I know we're getting- But, but, but on, a, on a much lesser level. So, you know, at that elevated kind of place, I think, um, even though the Lyme was gone, now I had the secondary condition that had been caused by Lyme, but I was still having to kind of navigate that. So it, it's much less now, but it's definitely something that I've put my faith in um, traditional Western medicine, which I've seen in acupuncturists for a very long time, but not someone like this. And Kelsey, who um, lives here in Maryland, actually, I connected with her. Kelsey when Watkins? I was yeah. Oh, wow. Small yeah, world. I, I was able to connect with her because one of the friends that I'd made um, because of Lyme, I posted something on my social media and I said, hey, I'm experiencing all these crazy symptoms. There's not a long term, uh, not a lot of long term data about SOT. Um, does anyone know anyone that has gone through this and is on the other side of it that I can speak to? And that friend connected me to Kelsey. And Kelsey was very sweet and very helpful in, in sharing her experience um, as someone that has both MCAS and Lyme disease and what that had looked like. And she just normalized all of it. And it helped to hear it from someone that was now on the other side of it. And that's the same person who, when we moved to Maryland, I had started seeing an acupuncturist here in town. And she just out of nowhere emailed me and said, wait, you live here in, Mar you live here in Maryland now. You have to see this doctor of oriental medicine. She has helped me so much with Lyme and she's in Gaithersburg. And I had no idea what Gaithers, where Gaithersburg was like in relation to where we live. And I thought, what are you gonna lose? Like your mast cells are still going off, go there. And she has transformed my body in the last eight months in ways that I never imagined possible. And so the flares that I have now will last like maybe a day and then they're gone completely. So you're in this cleanup phase now, you know, after yeah. Lyme, cleaning up the damage that was done for, for years and years and years in your life. But Jenny's, I know we're getting really tight on time here, but Jenny's going to talk to you a little bit about your transformation and things you're doing to give back to the community. I don't want to 
not note all the work you've done with Project Lime, Take Jedi, educating your school's PTA on tick bite prevention, all the great things you're doing now to give back to the community. So if you could just share a little bit of that and have a discussion with Jenny on those topics and how you've used this to be a better person and also give back to the community. Yeah, I'd love to hear about those things. Yeah, um, let me see. So when I moved here, I was still dealing with the fallout with MCAS um, with my body and I'd been exposed to mold, which um, in our move here while well, we were in hotels here on the East Coast. And so my body was just in a very flared state. And at that point, um, Jennifer from uh, Project Lyme reached out and asked if I wanted to be part of a Lyme PSA. And my body was not in a place where I was still treating for parasites at that point. I'm just on the tail end of it. And I did not feel good. My muscles were still going crazy. And I thought, there was a part of me that was like, I have to wait until I'm better. And then there was another part that just thought, no, the, the fall is, is almost here and ticks are going to be out in full force. You have to, you have to do this. Like you have to start to share your story. And so I went to New York and shared my story for the Lyme PSA and that was kind of the start of this different journey of being on the other side of Lyme and sharing the story and normalizing it. And it felt incredibly important because I have friends and colleagues who, when I shared my diagnosis, you know, with no ill intent, just kind of thinking out loud or sharing what they thought would ask like, well, are you sure you have Lyme? Because isn't Lyme kind of controversial, um, you know, the CDC doesn't recognize it in entirely. Like, are you sure you have that? And there was something that felt really important about sharing from the inside of Western medicine, of conventional medicine of like, yes, I, I am part of this establishment where Lyme is not recognized and the chronic Lyme is not recognized in the way that it should be. I am part of that establishment. And I am saying like, hey, it's true, it exists. I had it, it destroyed my life and it exists and it should be recognized. And it should be something that every doctor tests for um, yearly even with the numbers and increasing cases that we're seeing. And it felt like just the sense of urgency behind it. And around that time, a few months after that, Adina from Lime TV was starting the Tick Jedi Coalition to get tick education into schools. And she posted something about it. You know, if anyone wants to help um, join this coalition, you know, do you want to be a part of it? Message me. And again, I thought my MCAS is still a little bit nuts. If some, some days can be really hard and I don't know if I had the bandwidth yet. And there was a different layer of urgency now because my daughter was starting school here in Maryland and her school is separated from the woods only by a chain link fence. Wow. And there was a, a big sense of urgency behind that because I thought it, the risk was no longer as abstract as it had been before. Not that I didn't want to do that work, right? But there was a recognition of it kind of on a micro level for me where I thought maybe my actions don't have to be as huge as 
as I'm thinking, like maybe these small actions can start here at my daughter's school through her PTA. Like maybe we can start to do things that way. And that way it might not be that overwhelming. So I reached out to Adina and I said, hey, Adina, I have no idea how to, how to prepare this, how to educate people without scaring them um, and having their guard kind of go up in that way. Like what, how can we do this? And she was so amazing and is so, so great at putting these things together and obviously already had a whole TIG Jedi program put together for these kinds of things and helped me prepare it. And so I was able to present to our school PTA. And as I started to log into the TIG Jedi meetings, um, I mentioned at one point something, you know, I wrote up this letter that we could send to nursing unions and to school PTAs. And I mentioned something to Adina about being a public health nurse. And she wasn't aware that I was. And she said, oh, you know, would you like to be a part of Lime TV? You could be the director of clinical outreach. This would be great. You know, you could reach out to schools, you could reach out to PTAs, you could reach out to um, different medical establishments here in the community. And we could try to make this a nationwide thing eventually. And, you know, this would be really impactful. And again, there was kind of that doubt and that, that imposter syndrome, I think that, that, that I should share that I, I very much still feel of like, wow, how, you know, just last year I was a patient and I was still so ill. And now I'm on the other side of this. How can I make a difference if I'm still dealing with the fallout of MCAS, right? Or, you know, I don't know how to to advocate in this role exactly. Like, I, I don't know it in the same way as a bedside role, right? Like, how do we do this? And Adina has been so amazing about guiding me through it. And I feel grateful to be able to do that. And I have so much left to learn from her, but it, it feels right um, that even on bad days that I may have because of MCAS to start to do that work. That's amazing. Um, you've come so far in, you know, over the last seven years, but really in the last two, you know, that's really been where so much of, of your healing has come from. But you, you know, you're in a unique position, like you stated, being in the healthcare system and then having to step outside to really find that healing. Um, I think my final question to you would be, what do you want the medical establishment to know? If you could just tell them one thing, what's the one thing that you wish they would know or could know about Lyme disease? I think that, you know, when you are speaking to the establishment, to the medical community, I think that you have to first point out that the test that so many view as a valid way of ruling out the disease is not accurate. You know, it's like 50% accurate at best. And I think that, I think when you start to talk to the medical community from that place, right, from a measurable place, or, you know, lack of being measurable. I think that, I think that they will be able to better hear it than sharing, you know, someone's harrowing story of, you know, how they suffered and arrived, you know, at their diagnosis. I think that there's a bit of a block in, in the medical community being able to hear that as opposed to 
hey, you know, this test isn't very accurate. What other testing methods can we use? What other tests can we use to rule those things out? And should we be looking at this being a test that is done yearly for all age groups so that we catch the disease before it snowballs and gets to a place where all of us have been, right? Where it takes your life away from you. That's an excellent piece of advice. I like that a lot. To, to come at the doctor with some facts, some statistics saying, hey, this test isn't accurate. What more is there? That's really helpful, I think, to, to listeners. Thank you for listening to the Tick Boot Camp interview with our guest, Gabriella Wajagana-Wardena. To our listeners, we have a call to action. First, if you'd like to learn more about Gabriella, please visit her Instagram page at myempoweredheart. Second, if you've enjoyed this episode of the Tick Boot Camp podcast, please share it with your friends on social media. Third, Tick Boot Camp has created a Tick Bite blueprint that has been inspired by the information that has been shared with us by past podcast guests. We urge you to visit our website at tickbootcamp.com bite to view the blueprint. Fourth, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify to get your automatic episode updates of our Tick Bootcamp podcast. Please take a minute to leave us an honest review on your podcast platform of choice. And finally, if you'd like to search our podcast library of over 250 episodes for specific keywords, please visit tickbootcamp.com search. You can also subscribe to our email list at tickbootcamp.com slash join. If you'd like to share feedback with Tick Bootcamp, please use the contact form on our website at tickbootcamp.com. Thank you, as always, for listening.